millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everybody is asking, how did the whole world get the coronavirus pandemic so wrong? You know, we always want somebody to blame after a disaster like this. But the fact is, most of the world screwed this up with only one or two exceptions. And today we're going to talk about one of the exceptions, Taiwan. How to fight a virus. Learning from Taiwan with Samson Ellis. It knows it is on its own. Taiwan knows that it doesn't have the backup of, say, the, the WHO. It does not have the backup of the World Bank. If Taiwan were to have an economic crisis or a health crisis, it cannot rely on any of these major international organizations. And that's why Taiwan backs itself up and is very, very cautious when it comes to issues like this. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? If you look at a map, you'd think Taiwan would be one of the most vulnerable places on Earth for the coronavirus. It's an island about 80 miles off the coast of China. There's a huge amount of travel back and forth, perfect conditions for a virus to spread quickly. But Taiwan was ready for coronavirus. You know, they detected it very early. In fact, they tried to warn the rest of the world about it. And they managed to keep their cases extremely low. How did they do it? We're joined by Samson Ellis, who is the Taipei bureau chief for Bloomberg News. And he's been covering this pandemic since the start. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. So what is the status of coronavirus cases in Taiwan right now? So I don't think it's really an exaggeration to say that there is nowhere else in the world I would rather be right now than Taiwan. Taiwan has dealt with this worsening crisis admirably well. Only 396 cases so far, um, six deaths, which is obviously a tragedy in any any way you look at it. But you, you compare that to pretty much anywhere else in the world. And Taiwan is clearly outperforming everywhere else. Okay, so Samson, what did Taiwan do differently from other countries, not only the US and Europe, but also in Asia? I think there are three main things that uh, Taiwan did particularly well. First of all, early intervention. Secondly, there's a very high level of medical expertise and competence at the very top of the government here. And thirdly, Taiwan has an excellent healthcare system. Is another reason, though, trust in, in the government? Now, that undoubtedly has played uh, a role in this as well. 
Taiwan is the most transparent government in the world, according to rankings by Open Global Source Index. And, and you know, that leads to a situation where, by and large, people believe what the government is saying. The daily coronavirus briefing by the government is the most watched show in Taiwan right now. And and they really do go through in incredible detail um, the details of every single new case. And it does help that Taiwan has a relatively low number of cases. Uh, but in that briefing, they will go through every single new case, give you details of who it is, how old they are, what gender, roughly where they are, and how they got the disease and um, their entire contact chain. And they do that with every single person openly for the public. And that trust also means it's kind of a two-way street. One of the things that Taiwan has done is really rely on the public to provide a lot of data. And it seems that people are willing to call in to the toll-free numbers if they think they might be infected and volunteer a lot of information to the government. Not everyone around the world would be so happy doing that. That is true. And that that is to a certain extent, a, a factor of uh, you know the transparency coming from the government, or product of a very good healthcare system. You know, it does not cost much money to go and see the doctor, and also the the vice president in Taiwan is an epidemiologist. He was the man who was in charge of the fight against SARS in Taiwan seventeen years ago. So you know, you could not ask for a, to have a better person at the top of government right now. You know, his experiences 17 years ago when he was health minister did lead to Taiwan making a lot of improvements to stuff like contact tracing, which is absolutely critical at a time like this. But then also creating regulatory changes that allowed uh, government agencies to share information more freely with each other, whether it be immigration, whether it be customs, whether it be the telecoms companies. Uh, You know, the government here does track your phone. If if you've come back from overseas and you're put in quarantine, you have to sign a waiver and the government will be tracking your phone to see where you are and see if you're stepping out your front door. Could you explain the term contact tracing? So that way, when you do get a, a new confirmed case, then you go through everybody that person has been in touch with, quite simply, to work out, number one, who may be infected them, but then also who maybe you then went on to infect. Taiwan has universal health care coverage, in fact, a single-payer system. To what extent did that help in fighting coronavirus? Without doubt, that had a very big role in uh, helping contain the, the spread of the virus. Number one, people are not afraid to go and see their doctor. They know that the costs are going to be absolutely manageable. Uh, And number two, doctors are the front line, right? They are the first points of contact for anybody usually getting this disease. So they're the first people to flag, hey, there's somebody with a fever, there's somebody with a runny nose, there's somebody showing other symptoms. So having those people there feeding information into the um, broader system is absolutely crucial and getting people tested very quickly as well, which again, happens quite quickly in Taiwan. The SARS epidemic in 2003 We didn't pay that much attention to it in the U.S., but clearly in Asia, this was a a very big deal. And it didn't just heighten awareness in Taiwan. There were a number of institutions that were actually put in place, but also what's known as the Central Epidemic Command Center. What does that do? 
Back in 2003, when, when SARS emerged here, the health minister at the time did realise that there were major flaws in the system. Um, and one of those major flaws was the ability of uh, agencies to uh, talk to each other and share information with each other. You've got to remember, Taiwan was, until 1988, was under martial law. It was an authoritarian country. The first um, direct presidential elections only happened in 1996. So Taiwan was coming out of a long, long history of authoritarianism, which in some ways did create a certain distrust of the government. And so the government has, over the past 25 years, had spent a lot of time winning back that trust, and it has done so to a large degree. You, you talked about how Taiwan has the most transparent democracy in the world. In what way is Taiwan transparent or more transparent than other countries? Well, quite simply, you can look up pretty much any government information, whether it's to do with budgets and any kind of spending data, uh, economic data, commercial data, health data, transportation data. It is all available. And, and certainly as a journalist, many of my colleagues remark upon this when they you know, get the chance to come to Taiwan to do some reporting. Also, they created a position that has now come to be called the digital minister. And so this digital minister has tried to use some of these new technologies to try and pull back the curtain on what exactly the government's doing and then try and get people much more engaged. And I've been looking at this issue for quite some time and it really is really astonishing what they're doing. And people from all over the world uh, are coming to Taiwan to learn exactly what they're doing and the successes of this system. Some of the measures you described are fairly restrictive, you know, tracking your cell phone if you're in quarantine. How did the citizens react to all this? I think that, that's been one of the most remarkable things, uh, being here and witnessing it firsthand. It's just seeing how on board everybody is with doing their bit to combat the spread of the virus. They do take public health. They too do take things like cleanliness and hygiene incredibly importantly. If you have a cold and you're going to work, you put a mask on to protect your colleagues. When COVID-19 first broke out, uh, right at the end of, of 2019, what did Taiwan do in, in those early weeks that, that no other country did? Taiwan pays very, very close attention to what's going on in China, probably closer attention than anybody else in the world. And so they picked up very, very early on that there was some kind of new virus emanating from Wuhan. Now, Wuhan is a city of 11 million people. I mean, it's an enormous city. Um, so among those 11 million people, there were certainly thousands of Taiwanese people living there too. And so as soon as any flight came back to Taiwan from Wuhan health workers would board the planes, they would take the temperatures of everybody on the on the flights, and they would put anybody in quarantine who had a fever, who showed any kind of symptoms. And that was the earliest intervention. And Taiwan also was very quick to alert the rest of the world to this at a time when, for example, the WHO was still repeating China's line that there's nothing to worry about here. We'll talk about that in just a moment. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Samson Ellis, the Taipei Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. More in a minute. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. We need a little bit of historical perspective here, Samson. We're talking about Taiwan's geopolitical realities vis-a-vis China. What exactly is the status? It's Taiwan is not exactly recognized as an independent country. China claims it's part of China, but doesn't actually rule it. What's going on exactly? So shortly, just a very brief skim through Taiwan's history. It was part of the Qing dynasty, but then was ceded to Japan in 1895. Uh, And then obviously after the Second World War, Japan ceded control over Taiwan, but because this Chinese civil war was ongoing at the time, there were two governments in China, the Republic of China, and then there was the People's Republic of China, or what went on to become the People's Republic of China, the communists at the time. And so Taiwan was not actually ceded clearly to any nation. So right now it's it's functionally independent from China, but but has never formally declared independence. Yeah, so you know whether to call it a country or not, you know that's always the tricky thing. But it certainly is a state. You know, there are Taiwanese passports. There's Taiwanese currency. You can travel pretty much anywhere in the world with a Taiwanese passport. But certainly in the UN and other global institutions, Taiwan is not given the same status as as other countries, and that complicates uh, the situation here because the World Health Organization is an agency of the UN. And it doesn't recognize Taiwan, correct? That is true. So Taiwan did quit its seats in the United Nations uh, back in 1971 when the Communist Party or the PRC was admitted. And, and Taiwan alerted the World Health Organization about human-to-human transmission of COVID-19 very early. In fact, uh, the, on the last day of 2019, what happened to those warnings? Yeah, well, obviously, that's one of the big mysteries of this whole outbreak. As Taiwan is not a member of the United Nations and therefore is not a member of the WHO, Taiwan does not have a clear path of communication with the WHO. And so Taiwan does have an email address. It can email in questions or report data. Nothing comes back the other way because the WHO can't recognize, you know, this entity that is Taiwan. Um, And so Taiwan did email this information to the WHO and then nothing came back. And so this warning from Taiwan was simply overlooked by the WHO. A lot of people have criticized the WHO for initially seeming to downplay the crisis. I mean, even in mid-January, they were still denying that there was a human-to-human contact, which was China's official position at the time. 
What do you think about these accusations that WHO is too cozy with China and isn't willing to to uh, speak clearly about some of these risks if they're afraid of offending China? Yeah, that's obviously a problem that people not only in Taiwan have noticed about the WHO, and it, and it goes beyond healthcare. If you want engagement from China, you have to play very nicely with, with China. Um, but I think, and this goes back to the point I made right at the very beginning, that maybe one of the counterintuitive factors for Taiwan's success in dealing with this outbreak is that it's not a member of the WHO. Taiwan has obviously wanted to become a member of the WHO and has petitioned for many years to become a member. But simply the fact that it wasn't receiving information from the WHO, plus also Taiwan's default stance and attitude on so many of these crises is it knows it is on its own. Taiwan knows that it doesn't have the backup of, say, the, the WHO. It does not have the backup of the World Bank. It does not have support from the IMF. If Taiwan were to have an economic crisis or a health crisis, it cannot rely on any of these major international organizations. And that's why Taiwan backs itself up and is very, very cautious when it comes to issues like this. So its independence has helped its inventiveness? Its inventiveness, also its uh, rigor with which it pushes through the measures that it has to to control the spread of the virus. All Taiwan gets is as much information as the WHO is sharing with the general public. So Taiwan knows that, yes, it has to come up with innovative solutions to help diminish the spread. Samson, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and I noticed that you've been covering a little bit this crazy story that's been popping up in the last week or, or so, where apparently there's been a lot of criticism of Dr. Tedros, the director general of the World Health Organization. He's been accusing Taiwan of making racist attacks on him, which is some pretty strong statements against Taiwan. But there's evidence those attacks aren't actually coming from Taiwan. What's going on? Yeah, this was a quite remarkable episode uh, last week. The WHO has largely not even mentioned the word Taiwan. Uh, there was an infamous video about a week prior to that where a, a senior WHO official was being questioned by a reporter from Hong Kong, and she asked him about Taiwan, and he pretended he hadn't heard the question and then just literally hung up on her. And then less than a week after that, Dr. Tedros was asked in a briefing by CNN whether or not attacks from the likes of Donald Trump harmed the credibility of the WHO and himself at a time when they specifically need this credibility all over the world. And he didn't mention that at all. He then came out with this quite remarkable claim that he's been the target of a racist online campaign for the past three months and that it's coming from Taiwan. Where are those attacks coming from then, if indeed there are attacks? And the thing is, you look online, it's the internet. There is unsavory stuff everywhere. And of course, China has this 50 cent army, which is a, a group of internet users who are actually paid by governments, local governments often, uh, to spread information that is beneficial to the Chinese state. And why 50 cents? It's very cheap. And so the resulting product you get from that is also often largely ineffectual. So, so here we have this case 
we've got this terrible disease. It's killed way over 100,000 people worldwide. Aren't there more important things that we should all be focused on right now? Well, well, not for an authoritarian communist government. Perception is reality, you know. And since the, the PR spin of this has been very integral to China's campaign um, in combating the virus, you know, being very, very sensitive about it being linked in any way to Wuhan or to China, which in, in some ways is absolutely understandable. Samson, what's the biggest lesson we can take away from Taiwan's handling uh, of the disease? Well, I think, number one, for the United States and Western Europe now, they had weeks, if not months, to prepare for this, and they didn't. So learn the lessons from what Asia's democracies and China in certain cases did to contain this this virus. Um, actually, I was listening a while ago to your fascinating conversation with uh, Rich Harwood from the Harwood Institute and, and what he said about the importance of you know finding local solutions that work for local communities and empowering and inspiring people from all walks of life to participate in the solutions that affect them. Um, and that really resonated with me because you can see that in so many aspects of Taiwan's fight against this disease. And while the government absolutely has played its role with early intervention and clear communication and high level expertise, its attitude to openness has been absolutely key in bringing people on side and more importantly, allowing them to take an active role in fighting this crisis. One of the worst aspects of a crisis is that feeling of being impotent that you can't do anything about it you've just got to sit there and wait for it to be over and that creates all kinds of anxieties in people um but in taiwan's case because it was so open so transparent and it has this long tradition of civic what we call civic tech where people and you know the public largely try to adapt uh solutions from the technology sphere in the public good not just for profit but in the public good and Taiwan citizens have been able to get together, take the data the government has provided them, and turn it into something practical and useful. Samson Ellis, Taipei Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, thanks very much for joining us and giving us your perspective on Taiwan's fight against coronavirus. Before our conversation, Jim has a recommendation. Richard, I've been reading one of those books that you hear about your whole life, but you've never actually read. It's a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which is a classic of environmental literature by Annie Dillard. And it's about a year she spent living in a remote part of Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains and basically just taking walks around her little house and sitting on the banks of a creek and observing nature and thinking about the universe and it's the kind of thing that a guy like me, you would think, might find sort of annoying. And I just absolutely love it. I'm just blown away by her writing. And it's funny and it's deep. But also, at a time like this, it's so nice just to read something about the joy of life and the planet and nature and not to be thinking about everything else that's going on around us. So I couldn't recommend this more. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Thank you. 
I found the Taiwan example inspiring. Here we have a, a feisty democracy right off the coast of China with only 400 cases of coronavirus and just six deaths as of uh, the middle of this week. Um, it's also a country where people largely trust the government and seem to be okay with the kind of uh, technology and contact tracing and surveillance uh, that has been needed to help Taiwan through this health emergency. One wonders, though, whether uh, the U.S., which is so much more culturally and racially diverse, uh, would be a place where this would work as well. Uh, one other thought about Taiwan is that it, it does have a single payer, a universal health care system. And perhaps that has really helped it combat this coronavirus. Although uh, there are many other countries with single payer universal health care systems that have not done nearly as well. Um, but to that point, a friend of our family who's Mexican-American and lives in New York was telling me just this past few days that his uncle died of coronavirus and had been reluctant to see a doctor because he was worried about the cost of treatment. I think that when the worst of this pandemic is over, there's going to be a, a, a renewed and perhaps even stronger debate over healthcare accessibility and cost. There's no question that the reluctance of people to get tests, not just the shortage of tests, but the obstacles that were put in people's way and cost is a major one are something that we're really going to have to look at. So I, I'm I'm with you on that. I may not agree with you ultimately about the solutions, but there's a real problem here. And that's a debate we're going to have to come back to in, in future episodes. But right now, I think one of the big lessons from Taiwan is the benefit of being an outsider. They're not part of the UN. They're not part of the IMF. They're very close to China and don't trust China. So they were extremely skeptical about everything they heard coming from China about coronavirus. I suspect that if China said, oh, it's all under control, the Taiwan health officials were probably already zipping up their hazmat suits, you know. But I think there's a lesson here for all of us is don't just go along with the crowd. If something, if there's subtle signs or growing signs of a problem, there's a lot to be said for for stepping outside the consensus. Yeah, it's not a member of the World Health Organization and tried to warn the world, but the message didn't get through properly. This whole story with the World Health Organization is blowing up right now with Trump now threatening to defund the American contribution in the World Health Organization, which I think is is misguided. The leadership aside, they do a lot of very important work all over the world. I'm sure all the medical people at WHO are are pretty upset with what's going on. But the fact is the leaders of the organization have allowed themselves to be dragged into this bizarre you know, political battle where they won't even acknowledge the existence of Taiwan practically. They, they've tried to help China with their propaganda that they did such a great job of controlling coronavirus when clearly all you have to do is look around the world and see that's patently untrue. And so they have brought great distrust upon, down upon an organization that needs trust more than ever. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs, and our show is produced by Miranda Schaefer. 
And this show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And if you like our show, uh, please go to Patreon and uh, subscribe. Uh, be a supporter so that we can get the message out and boost our audience. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.